expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up. No matter if the prize is high in the skies or deep, deep in perdition, if our leaders are globally despised and always seem to rise through attrition or blatant nepotism, if women and children have to live in impossible conditions, if you have to die due to someone else's damn decisions, rise up. When innocent citizens perish for all our sins' sake, if the future seems bleak and your soul's at stake, rise up. When it appears that any hope left may already be lost. That seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Currently hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed and Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition's communications manager Leila Aziz. On this weekly broadcast, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. We are the official educational and introductory program representing the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. If you want to know about the new abolitionist movement, what it is, and what it's about, this is officially the place to start. Today is the November 29th, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. On this day in 1864, Colonel John Shivington and his 700 Colorado volunteers, many of them drunk, attacked the sleeping village at Sand Creek. Most of the Cheyenne men were away hunting, so the women, children, and elders were largely defenseless. In the frenzied slaughter that followed, Shivington and his men killed more than 100 women and children and 28 men. Black Kettle escaped the attack. The soldiers scalped and mutilated the corpses, hacking off body parts that included male and female genitals, and then returned to Denver where they displayed the scalps to approving crowds during intermission at a downtown theater. In our sights tonight are debtors' prisons, modern slave catchers, modern slavery, Baltimore, and Ohio. As always, we'll have discussions, examine current news, and connect all the dots about modern legalized slavery for you in a nice, neat boat. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Francis E. W. Harper, abolitionist, poet, and activist, 1825 to 1911. 
in the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will remember Gabriel's conspiracy of August 30th, 1800, and his call of death or liberty. A rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Baltimore's Sabian Burgess, who was released from prison in 2015 after the wrongful conviction for a 1994 murder of his then-girlfriend, Michelle Dyson. This month, a federal jury awarded him $15 million after spending more than two decades wrongfully incarcerated for murder. Have a question or comment? You can call us toll-free at 866-510-9025. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Layla? What's happening, Scotty? How you guys doing? I'm good. How you guys doing? Doing the best I can. Uh, I'm just finishing celebrating my birthday, and happy birthday to you, Scotty. Yours is tomorrow. Thank you, and happy belated birthday to you as well. Appreciate it. Mine was boring, man. I stayed home. We had Chinese food, and uh, you know we just chilled with family. It was nice to be here with family after being on the road for several weeks, and in a few days, I'll be on the road for a month and a half, so... I'm going to be missing my peoples. I mean, chilling with your family, that sound, sound good. I mean, we're not at that age where we be clubbing and stuff, you know, Max? So, I don't know. It, it might be some 50-year-olds out there still clubbing, but I'm not. Man, so my AARP card got an extra eight. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> Ancient. <laughs> But I do want to go ahead and just let everybody know I'll be disappearing here in a, about five minutes. Um, as a lot of people have been talking about Libya, um, I've been invited to give some information about this very serious situation going on in Libya on another radio program. And with that being a, the dire situation that it is, I told them I'll do my best to, uh, you know, come in and do what I can. But I'll definitely uh, be back on with you all before the program is out, actually before the top of the hour. No doubt, Scotty. I appreciate you uh, lending your wisdom to those that will hear about what's happening in Libya, which we have been reporting on now for years uh, about the case of what happened after the invasion of Libya. And we'll talk about it with you after you come back. So uh, definitely good luck on that and uh, just tell them what you need, to, what you got to tell them, brother. Okay. Well, I'll leave it in your capable hands and I shall return. No doubt. No doubt. Well, Layla, uh, you know, I've been a little bit distressed this week because of the news that keeps really digging into the question of who is black and who's not black. And it has been driving me nuts every time these questions start coming up. And people start pulling out, you know, their license to pull your black card. It just drives me nuts. Uh, you know, I've been to California. I used to live out there. So I know out in Cali, it's a much more diverse crowd. There's a lot of mixed people out that way. But here in South Carolina, it's not necessarily like that, you know. And I can see it's not like that across the world where, you know, what's happening with the, with the Prince uh, Henry or William or whatever the hell his name is, is getting married. And the way they're talking about his wife to be, it's just it's just shameful, man. I don't think people understand what race is. Do you run across that problem often, Layla, where people really are talking about race and racism when they don't even know what it is? 
Yes. Um, first, we all agree that race is a social construct, but tradition and culture are not. And so I think that's one of the biggest issues that people are having a problem with. Um, when I see this woman, when I see her raising, how she was raised, and I see, I don't know much about her, but just from the surface of what I saw, her mom, this is a black woman. And it seems that there are people who are upset that she's black, and then there are people who are saying she's not black. Yeah, I get that. My whole life I've had to deal with that, you know what I mean? And it just drives me nuts. And I've tried to give more to my children. Um, you know, people just don't understand race. Race is a construct, as you mentioned earlier, that started back in the, actually, in, it really came into life in the 1800s. And that was when the African slaves and the white indentured servants and white working poor decided to start working together <clears throat> to either overthrow the elites or to just form their own sense of power base, uh, I, I, I guess. And when they saw that coming, that's when this whole concept of race was developed. There was no black people and white people before that. There was no red people and no yellow people. And, you know, frankly, it is insulting just hearing people say things like bl what black people want. You never hear him say what red people want. You never hear him say what yellow people want because it sounds ridiculous, you know? Uh, and, and the whole thing with the brown paper bag testing is just outrageous. You know, you got to be this. It's like the rides you get on at the, the amusement park. You got to be this mm -hmm. tall to get on. You got to be this dark to get on. It's, it's nuts, That's man. That's true. You remember that Spike Lee movie with the sororities and how they incorporated that paper bag test in there? Yes, yes, I, I do. Uh, I was watching a film today that I highly suggest everybody watch. It's like 20 years old. It's called Cosmic Slop Space Traders, and it was mm. produced by George Clinton. And the concept, it's only like a 45-minute movie, but it's brilliant. The concept of it was uh, aliens came to Earth and addressed America specifically and told them, look, we'll solve all your problems, make you rich beyond measure, uh, we'll you'll give you endless energy, anything you could possibly want. All you got to do is give us all your black people, and they wouldn't tell them why they wanted these black people. Okay. And America had to sit down and think about: Are we going to trade in all the black people in our country so we could have all the gold and all the wealth and everything we could possibly imagine? I'm not going to give away too many spoilers about it, but if you get a chance, you should check it out. It's called Cosmic Slop. Space Traders, and it would definitely make I will make try to watch thing. it today. Is it on Netflix? You can find it on YouTube. It's been around for like okay. 20 years, so you can find okay. it just by anywhere. And as I said, it's not even a long movie. It's like 45 minutes. I watched it with my wife and daughter today. I think it was my third time watching it because it inspires thought, and it makes you think about what would they actually do if presented with something where they have to sell us out whole scale in order to achieve their goals. Interesting. It also um, demonstrates um, this whole um, concept of race and how upset certain people are that she's bearing into the royal family on how um, a lot of people um, from Europe still hold that purity standard um, of what they think is a supremacist point of view. And that in itself demonstrates that we haven't come far. We're still dealing with the same things as in slavery, from slavery 
to that understanding of one drop makes you a nigga and therefore you should be in a certain place. Yes, and it's a construct. I mean, we didn't create it. We're subject to it. But yes. we, you know, like the word nigga, we claim it as ours and then we try to make it something that's about us when it wasn't ever about us at all. One of the things that we lost in the enslavement of the Africans was knowledge of our nations of origins. So many people prior to DNA testing had no idea what country they came from. So they would just point at a continent and go, I'm from Africa. That's a whole continent with like 50 some odd nations in it. What country are you from? And they're not all peaceful with each other. You know, Africa has as many issues as Europe has as far as, you know, exactly. uh, intertribal, international issues and things like that. I mean, who you, what what do you descend from? Tutsi or Butu? Because, you know, those are very different people, you know? But that was one of the things that they stole from us, our knowledge of where we came from. Uh, I wouldn't mind reading a little bit about The Origin of a Race by Audrey Smedley. And it's from Anthropology Newsletter, November. Maybe this will clear up uh, for those people that you know, would be out there talking about race when they don't understand what it is. Uh, it's called A New Social Identity. Toward the end of the 18th century, the image of Africans began to change dramatically. The major catalyst for this transformation was the rise of a powerful anti-slavery movement that expanded and strengthened during the revolutionary era, both in Europe and in the United States. As a consequence, pro-slavery forces found it necessary to develop new arguments for defending the institution. Focusing on physical differences, they turned to the notion of natural inferiority of Africans and thus their God-given suitability for slavery. Such arguments became more frequent and strident from the end of the 18th century on, and the characterizations of Africans became more negative. From here, we see the structuring of the ideological components of race. The term race, which had been a classificatory term like type or kind, but with the ambiguous meaning, became more widely used in the 18th century and crystallized into a distinct reference for Africans, Indians, and Europeans by focusing on the physical and status differences between the conquered and enslaved peoples and Europeans, the emerging ideology linked the socio-political status and physical traits together and created a new form of social identity. Pro-slavery leaders among the colonists formulated a new ideology that merged all Europeans together, rich and poor, and a fashion, fashioned a social system of ranking of ranked physical distinct groups. The model for race and races was the great chain of being or scale of nature, a semi-scientific theory of natural hierarchy of all living things derived from the classical Greek writings. The physical features of different groups became markers or symbols of their status on the scale and thus justified their position within the social system. Race ideology proclaimed that the social, spiritual, moral, and intellectual inequality of a different group was, like their physical traits, natural, innate, inherited, and unalterable. Thus was created the only slave system in the world that became exclusively racial. By limiting, limiting perpetual servitude to Africans and their descendants, colonists were proclaiming that blacks would forever be at the bottom of social hierarchy. By keeping blacks, Indians, and whites socially and spatially separated, 
and enforcing endogamous mating. They were making sure that physical, visible physical differences would pre be preserved as the premier insignia of unequal social statuses. From its inception and separateness and inequality was what race was all about. The attributes of inferior race status came to be applied to free blacks as well as slaves. In this way, race was configured as an autonomous new mechanism of social differentiation that transcended the slave condition and persisted as a form of social identity long after slavery ended. Now, you know and I know that slavery never ended, but this is what she wrote verbatim. That's really interesting, but it makes sense because if we look at it, and, and I remember in, I think in college, it's physical anthropology and we, when you really, and then cultural anthropology, both of those courses, when we really look at um, race and different things, we're told that there are only four races and that's Asian, black, white, and I believe Native American. In and anything this, else is model. derived from those. Yeah, and it's like, who said that these are races of people? Um, are we looking at traditions? Are we looking at culture or just land of where they are? And then they tell you that the Native Americans came from Asia across the Bering Strait. So none of it really makes much sense. It's just a social construct, like you read, in order to justify some really heinous things, and they're still being justified by this social construct. Right, and to use the most shallow identifier you could possibly imagine, the color of your skin. Isn't that something? Mm -hmm. And it still applies today, and that's how we have what we call racism. See, race is a construct. It's an illusion. It's not real. It's like smoke rings. But mm -hmm. the results of racism, of thinking like that, are very real. When you, as a cop, for instance, or a judge or a prosecutor, decide to treat someone with a darker <laughs> hue different than you would someone with a lighter hue simply because of what you believe or think, however erroneous it may be. And we see those results in states all across America where incarceration rates are astronomically higher for people of African descent or black people than for their counterparts of white people. Uh, I think, for instance, in states like Vermont, it's about 14 to 1. So for every one white person that's being incarcerated in Vermont, there's 14 black people. And when you think about that, it's already outrageous, but you got to add the population distribution into that too, and it becomes out of this world ridiculous. In Vermont, black people make up less than 1% of the population. So you're talking about 98 point whatever percent of the population it is, is white, and they have one person being incarcerated, and then 12 are being incarcerated from that less than 1%. That's what genocide sounds like. Yeah, and it's unacceptable on every single level um, that we're doing this and that we're allowing these things to happen and we're justifying it. And it's not race, it's religion. Um, so those two things, for some reason as humans, we always find a way to um, basically hurt each other. And it's gotten to the point where at some point um, there has to be an understanding and a, and a unification of good people who want a good and just world. And once we get there, I think that we'll start to have growth and development. And none of these things have to do with race or religion. Now, culture should always be maintained at all times, in my opinion. Yes. 
because those are important things. And it's it's interesting now because race is becoming, how can I say it, when I was growing up, my mom was very fair-skinned. My great-grandmother could pass, and they used to talk about how people would pass in Richmond, Virginia, and they would go off and not live as black people because they could pass. But culturally, for blacks and whites, this fake racial um, people of European or people of African descent, they were black because they had a um, a percentage of African in their blood. So my great-grandmother, because her mom died, who was pure African, um, she was, um, I guess, Irish or something, She um, because she died, she was um, always raised by African people, so she always considered herself African. That's all she knew even though she could have passed. So when we look at that, but now people are having these children not out of rape, but out of love. And these children have two parents that they love and they know. And some of them don't accept the racial notions or the racial um, characteristics or um, categories that they're being subjected to. And so therefore that's interested in some of the young people who might have African descent in them don't have any cultural ties because they may not have known the parent who was af- of African descent. So how does all of this play into <laughs> this notion of race? Right, right. Uh, let me read just some of the stats that we get uh, per 100,000 in regards to incarceration rates across the country. And uh, I put this out, and it kind of went viral, but here's just some of the states. Out in California, for every 405 whites, there are 2,758 blacks being incarcerated per 100,000. In New Jersey, for every 170 whites, there are 1,621 blacks being incarcerated. In Pennsylvania, it's 326 to 2,675. In Vermont, it's 207 to 2,030. In Wisconsin, it's 398 to 3,787. Wow. Like somebody so how do we stated, deal with this? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Go ahead. Just say what you were going to say. This is so now we we understand that all of this racial um that it's all fake, but yet we're being bought and sold based on it. Yes. And exactly. and what you know, and what's so interesting is how black people in America are so different than other people because we did not really mix with our oppressor and enslaver until fairly recently. Right. And so our community has a culture and a tradition that is very different than a lot of other communities. When I was a child coming up in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, I was one of the few people as light as I am in the whole community. Like, there was not a lot of us, you know what I mean? Our family was of mixed descent, and we kind of stood out uh, very much so. So even back in the 60s and 70s, we didn't have this huge population boom of multiracial and biracial people that you have right now. Um, Last I heard, it was somewhere near 50 million people in the United States who consider themselves of mixed uh, descent with African heritages. But, you know, slavery takes two...
Joining conference now. This conference is being recorded by the organizer. Whatever they wanted you to do. So it was basically white slavery at that time. And uh, had it not been for the Africans, that would have expanded. So you would have been seeing five million white people only in this country as slaves. And, you know, when it comes to slavery, the idea of chattel slavery versus what we have today might be a little confusing. But chattel simply means property. That's what it means, property. So when they say chattel slavery, they meant back in the day, we owned people. Well, when you look at the prison systems today, all you got to do is realize what they call you, state property. Exactly. They own <laughs> so it is chattel slavery all over again. And we've seen auctions where they were auctioning off the prisons, including the people. Uh, I believe it was uh, Brave, Brave New World or Brave New Voices that had an auction, immigrants for sale. And they showed that auction where they was auctioning off this prison for $5 million, And they were saying, uh, no matter what your business is, what's your profession, we will have a steady supply of people coming into this facility for whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. That's a slave trade right there. Yes, and it is. I often uh, remind people that the labor issue, the free labor that they get from these people who are incarcerated is gravy. That's not where the brunt of the money comes from. The brunt of their money comes from storing bodies like a butcher on a shelf in a freezer. All they got to do is pick you up, put you in a cell, and you're worth X amount of dollars every year. It's more money for children and women and less for men. But in places like New York, which charges the highest rates for incarceration, to incarcerate an adult is over $150,000 a year. To incarcerate a child, 15, 16 years old, is $350,000 a year. That is unjustifiable (laughs) anywhere you ask. It, it, it seems like such a scam. People are getting jobs, livable wages from buying and selling people, from monitoring property. Why in the world would it cost? Are they giving people PhDs in New York prisons? What is that? Where is that cost coming from? Because it's not health care. And even when health care comes into it and the cost rise because of health care, all you're dealing with are pharmaceutical companies coming in and doping up people to the point they're not even coherent anymore. And they're getting billions of dollars. So it's like this whole system is becoming rich off of state property. And then when you add the privatization aspect into it, it makes it even worse. Because, you know, the state can possess your body, collect tax money, because they're possessing your body. But now, in addition to that, private industry has moved in, and they're global now, where not only can they possess your body, but you can also, as an average person from anywhere in the world, buy stocks in these prisons. And when you're buying these stocks, you're buying stocks in the fact that they will always be full of people. So you're literally buying people and selling people but you're not doing it on the slave auction block like you did in the 1800s now it's all digital and online and the monies that you're making represent the human cost that is being expended in the form of blood and lives disgusting what's happening and um, what we're doing as human beings and then acting like we don't understand why our communities are so doggone damaged Indeed. Well, let's, we gave people something to think about with that conversation, and I highly suggest people do think about race. You shouldn't be out here talking about race if you don't know what it is. 
So first, please educate yourself on the idea of race, the concept of race, where it came from, how it began, how it's applied, and then you go out there and talk about it all you want after that. So you don't sound so stupid with some of the things that I'll be hearing people say, man. In any case, uh, what I would like, if, if possible, uh, Layla, is go ahead and pick a story that you want to do after this from our list of today's uh, potential stories, and I'll do one in the meantime and uh, remind people about how Thanksgiving came to be in black communities. Because, you know, we've had a lot of discussions about Thanksgiving these past few days. And people are like, you shouldn't celebrate it. It's, it represents this. It represents that. But it represents something else to people of African descent. And I found some articles that tell about it. So, Layla, if you want to go ahead and peruse through there, see what stands out for you, and we'll discuss that. And then I'll Sounds start good. out this story about Thanksgiving. Okay. This story comes from blackthen.com. And it says, African Americans have long embraced the tradition of honoring Thanksgiving, even during slavery time. <laughs> I hate when they say things like that. Even during slavery time, Africans took time to be thankful for what they had, which, of course, was not much. In 1777, when the Continental Congress delivered a decree for the 13 colonies to give thanks for reaching a victory over the British at Saratoga, the Africans also took part in the celebration throughout the region. And the tradition continued as a custom of rejoicing for rain to break droughts and plenty of harvest. So what did the slaves eat on this day that they were allowed to celebrate? The slaves who worked in the fields would often go out and catch wild game for their family and close enslaved friends. The women would prepare cornmeal cakes or pony cakes to go along with the game. The house enslaved people had it better than the field enslaved people. House uh, enslaved people feasted on the leftovers from the main house after the slave owners finished their meals. A forgotten fact. Thanksgiving started off as a church-oriented celebration for the black community. African-American pastors often gave sermons that could be heard loud and clear through the small black churches. The sermons would be about struggles, hopes, fears, and triumphs. The sermons usually grieved the institution of slavery, the suffering of black people, and often pleaded for what for, for that an awakening of a slave-free America would someday come soon. African Methodist Episcopalian cleric Reverend Benjamin Arnett stirred a predominantly black congregation on November 30th, 1876 with biblically inspired words saying, we call on all American citizens to love their country and look not on the sins of the past, but arming ourselves for the conflict of the future girding ourselves in the habiliments of righteousness, march forth with the courage of a Numidian lion and with the confidence of a Roman gladiator and meet the demands of the age and satisfy the duties of, of the hour. Then let the grand centennial Thanksgiving song be heard and sung in every house of God and in every home may Thanksgiving sounds be heard for our race has been emancipated enfranchised and are now educating and having the gospel preached to them. In 1863, Lincoln signed the proclamation of a national Thanksgiving Day, unifying the various regional practices that had already been taking place throughout the nation. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November 
next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our benefactor, Father, who dwelleth in the heavens. And that's what Lincoln said. Uh, and, and I'm kind of partial to Thanksgiving as I was born on Thanksgiving Day. But <laughs> this, okay. Me and my first granddaughter were both born on Thanksgiving Day. And I think it's only fell on our birthdays like three times in my whole life. So wow. I'm a little partial to it. But there's the history of Thanksgiving Day for African-Americans. We used it as a day to sing about freedom. Yes. <laughs> I understand that. And I also um, am thankful for my family. And I don't, I can't align myself with the holiday, though. Me either. Me either. But I just wanted to uh, give people an understanding of what it meant to Africans when it first began. Because, you know, it was like a loose holiday and everybody celebrated on different days until Lincoln unified all those celebrations. And I thought it might be important to have the perspective of, of the African-Americans when it comes to Thanksgiving and uh, how it began for them. Why we get oh, together with you. each other and do what we do. No, thank you very much because that was enlightening to me. I normally sit at Thanksgiving. I'm happy my family's there, but I'm kind of like, this is not a holiday we should be celebrating. And I still feel that way, even with the understanding that um, it did mean something to us, and I'm down to um, celebrate our holidays and that don't trample on the death and destruction of others. Yes, yes. Well, you know, there's something going on every day. Like today when I read the <laughs> intro... And I was talking about how this is the anniversary today of the Sand Creek Massacre. Uh, there's massacres that have happened throughout all of history on blacks and natives across this country. Yeah. But did you? We've got a pretty good lineup today of stories. Did you find something that you wanted to start with? I did, and I actually just clicked out of it, but it is the um, story on the young woman who was sentenced to life as a juvenile, the human trafficking. And I do see that Kim Kardashian is um, getting some news from her assistants. But um, um, there are thousands of women who fit the same profile that are currently incarcerated. And I'm hoping that we look at policy that allows these um, women to be treated as actual perpetrators instead of victims. And why this always happens to young women of color. And this is not the first um, issue of this. So um, you want me to go ahead into the article that you posted from Bustle about Kim Kardashian, or is this one of them? I, I think that might be something Scotty put up. I've seen the headlines, but I haven't had the opportunity to really read into her story. But feel free. Go ahead. Okay. So like basically, um, proving that she's definitely a woman of her word, Kim Kardashian West is reportedly helping Centoya Brown, a sex sex trafficking survivor convicted of murder. On Tuesday, Kardashian responded to Brown's story in a tweet and vowed to call her attorneys to see what could be done to fix this. Kardashian explained in the post, the system has failed. It's heartbreaking to see a young girl sex trafficked. Then, when she has the courage to fight back, she is jailed for life. We have to do better and do what's right. According to People, Kardashian has reportedly enlisted the assistance of her high-powered attorney, Sean Holly, to help Brown, the 29-year-old Tennessee woman who was tried as an adult for a murder she committed at 16. 
In 2004, Brown was served a 60-year prison sentence with no possibility of parole until 51 of those years had been fulfilled for killing Johnny Mitchell Allen, a man who had paid her for sex. At the trial, Brown's attorney presented evidence of sexual, physical, and verbal abuse, and the young woman being a third-generation abuse survivor. As reported by Newsweek, Brown had also testified that she had regularly I missed my spot, that she had regularly been abused and she was a victim of violent acts, including rape. According to the Tennessean, Brown said that she was forced into prostitution by a violent boyfriend and that her case actually inspired a change in law. Now people can only be charged with prostitution if they're aged 18 and older, while people under the legal age of consent are considered victims of self-trafficking. And this sounds all fine. (laughs) And we've just had a law like that um, passed in California maybe last year, but it still does not change the policy. We'll put this young lady um, in jail for 50 years. It almost seems like like it's an obvious thing that if a girl or a boy is 14, 15, 16 years old, they cannot... uh, they cannot legally, nor are they mature enough to decide to be a prostitute. Like somebody's pushing them in that direction. There's usually an adult around who is pushing them in that direction or exploiting them uh, as pimps or basically enslavers. And you're correct. We're having an issue with the ideology of pimps too, though. And the reason I say that is um, because now these are sexy terms that politicians are throwing around. And they're also sexy terms that are getting them um, voted um, again and again after they pass these laws that are these anti-human trafficking laws. And human trafficking initially was um, really about people who came from other countries. And like slavery, right? They came from other countries and then they were forced to work. And then the sex industry, they kind of um, put that in the same um, area as human trafficking. And what's really um, troubling about it is um, right now, for some reason, entrapment, entrapment on a federal level and definitely for the state of California is, um, has been loosened. And so what we're seeing are the police go on Facebook and they'll message a young boy who's 18, 19 years old on his mom's couch about to get kicked out, you know, not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And she'll say, you know, you're so fine. You're so hot. Let me PayPal you $500 or meet me at this hotel. I want to pay you. Who's little dumb boy? And a lot of these boys have IEPs. I don't mean to say dumb, but they're delayed in a lot of ways. They're in special education. Um, Excuse my albeism. Dumb was not the correct word. And they go to get this money and they're arrested on site, and they get four to six years. Wow. And so after they, they, come on. And, but it stands up in court. So now you have them come out, they have to register as a sex offender. This sex offender registration is the same registration as a man who's been molesting a two-year-old or a 10-year-old. Um, they, so therefore, they can't live in certain areas, they can't get a job, and then the crime and the cycle continues. So we have to be careful on what they're labeling as pimps, and there should be a prerequisite that makes you a pimp, like maybe an asset or two. Yeah, like um, you should have like the high okay. heel clogs on, and you know, or, like, an asset, something that makes 
it's ridiculous. Um, some and it's even gotten the laws have gotten so harsh where they're getting some of these young men where if they can even see that she sold her body and you got a dime out of it, whether she paid your phone bill or anything that they can see that was done and that you benefited from, you're now going to get pimping and pandering. So these laws have gotten really wide, and we're not realizing it because we think, oh, this is so heinous, prostitution, forced prostitution. And they always show you a 15-year-old girl with some 30-year-old man, and they're not getting those guys. That is not who's going to prison for prostitution. It's these young boys who are being entrapped, or them and their girlfriend, they're both 19, 20, they're both just super brainiacs, decide that this is a good way to get money and be independent. And so we need to look at other ways of stopping them from criminalizing our youth. But then let's even go further than that. Um, I deal with women all the time who've done 15, 20, 10 years for when they were actually really human trafficked. And because they're black women or Hispanic women, when the police come in, they treat them as just like the pimp. Let's even go deeper. Sarah Cruzan, that's California. 16-year-old girl kills her former pimp because what they're saying about this young lady is but she should have killed her pimp she didn't kill her pimp she killed a trick like it makes a difference to you people first of all she was a victim second of all why is a trick picking up a 16-year-old that's not okay and if you're going to go and pay for sex you need to have due diligence to make sure you're not buying a child you see what i'm saying that's that's exactly what you're looking for Come on, let's not pretend that he wasn't looking for a child. The girl's 30-something now and looks like she's 12, right? Right. So imagine what she looked like then, and you have the same situation with Sarah Cruzan. She ended up killing her pimp, her former pimp, though, the guy who had turned around at 13 years old. The state heard that, prosecuted her, and gave her life without parole at 16 years old. You know, And um, this is, go ahead. I'm sorry, Sister Layla. I just wanted to chime in on that because I had heard of Santonia Brown's case years ago, years ago. I mean, this was like back in 2008 when someone brought it to my attention. But what what gets me is for a very long time right here on New Abolitionist Radio, I've been asking feminist groups, women's groups to get involved more in the New Abolitionist Movement. Because it's just a shame that it took these celebrities going after these Hollywood uh, assaulters and rapists and what have you. And then the congressional people coming out. And now all of a sudden, you know, they paying attention to these cases. And those are just a couple of cases that you mentioned. You know, we've made reports where women in a prison in Michigan were being hogtied and, and butt naked. And not giving water and food for days, I guess, to make them more pliable to the guard's sexual advances. So I, I just wanted to chime in on that. It's just a shame. It's just a shame that it take some celebrities who ain't even speaking on the people, the, our, our sisters that's in the prisons, you know, girls and women uh, that are being subjected to this rape and, and sexual assault behind the bars. But I, I just had to chime in um, on, on that point. And I do want to let the caller know we do have the caller. I'm going to let Sister Layla respond, and we'll come to the caller. Sister Layla? I totally agree with you, Scotty. I totally agree with you. On every level, um, when you say we're the feminist, and this is a question I often ask on every level, how are young girls who've been 
prostituted as minors um, given life sentences for murdering either their rapist or the person who sells them to rapist. And then once these women are, come on, California sterilized black and Mexican women, hundreds of them. Yes, they did. Without their consent. So where are the feminists? Where are they? And so I have the same question as you, Scotty. Got women giving birth in prisons right now as shackles as they give birth. And then you have adoption agencies who are working with the jails and prisons, literally buying the children from the women that are having uh, babies in these prisons and jails. So you incarcerate a pregnant woman, and now she's lost a job, she has no family, she has no resources, no help, and then you come along with this adoption agency and say, hey, I'll give you $5,000 you can use whatever you want to use it for towards your case, put it in your commissary, whatever. All you got to do is put your child up for adoption for this particular couple, not just any couple. But this one right here. They're literally buying children from the jails and prisons like that. Another aspect of slavery. Exactly. Uh, let's go to our caller. Uh, we got um, new abolitionist L.A. Ramon on the line. Uh, greetings to you, brother. Please add to the conversation. Peace, L.A. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio Game. L.A., you there? Did you want to comment? Your mic's unmuted. Okay, we'll come back to L.A. later, let him work out his audio issues. Just chime in and let us know you there. L.A., we'll let you know if we can hear you. Max? Um, One of the stories that I want to get on is a a two-part story. It's about what's going on in Baltimore, the corruption in Baltimore with the police, the slave catchers in Baltimore, and how deep it is. And one of the biggest questions that I always bring up that nobody ever seems to want to ask outside of the abolitionist circle is when you find out that these cops are so damn corrupt, do you? It, it should be automatic that you check their entire career to see how many innocent victims have been subject to their corruption, especially if his racism is involved. But, you know, there's a big story going on in Baltimore right now because one policeman has been shot in the head and killed. And the only evidence of... Uh, bullets that they found in the area was from his own gun. So I believe it was three or four bullets from his own gun, and he was shot and killed in an alleyway. And it was the day before he was due to testify against other officers. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like an assassination by police on whistleblowers to me. Um, I can read some of the story from the first one in regards to this slain officer. And uh, mind you, this is Sean Souter is a person of color, a 43-year-old Baltimore homicide detective said he was shot in the head November 15th with his own service weapon while on duty. Um, Sean Shooter, 43, was fatally shot in the head November 15th, and the authorities say there is evidence of a struggle, according to the Baltimore Sun. At the time of his murder, the homicide detective was scheduled to testify before a federal grand jury about a case that alleged police in his city had conspired with cops in Philadelphia to sell cocaine and heroin. The drugs they were going to sell were allegedly seized from the streets of Baltimore. Now, you see how this is working, right? The cops, these slave catchers, are stealing the drugs from the drug uh, uh, dealers in Baltimore and then shipping it over to Philadelphia to sell it to the people of the city of Philadelphia. Baltimore Police Commissioner 
Kevin Davis has claimed that there is no link between Souter's death and the drug running indictment. Now, that already sounds fishy right there when you just up and just claim that there's no link and the investigation hasn't even been finished yet. The BBD and the FBI do not possess any information that this incident is part of any conspiracy, Davis told the Baltimore Sun. Souter worked for the Baltimore police for 18 years. He leaves behind a wife and two children. So that's part one of the story that's going on, uh, you know, where the guy has been killed. Now, who was it he was supposed to be testifying against? And that's the other story, which comes from the Inquirer. Titles, uh, Feds, Philly officers sold drugs stolen by corrupt Baltimore police squad. And this came out, uh, let me see if I can find the date. Well, I have a question first, Max. And my my question is, is this a separate uh, case involving Baltimore slave catchers than the ones who were indicted already by the FBI um, uh, earlier this year? Um, who were indicted, who were robbing people on the street, literally robbing and beating up people on the street. So is this separate? This Is this another set of cops? I can't say with all certainty. Uh, once you know, I get a chance to look on the line, I probably can find out. But I think this is a separate incident. I think you know, it is too, but I'm not, I'm like you, I'm not sure. But I believe this is a separate, uh, a separate case involving cops. That other one, it was six cops involved, uh, four of them black, uh, two of them white. Um, and, and the cops in Philly too. Remember, there was another set of cops in Philly that was like yes, six Yes, yes. Now, after you um, tell us the other story, I do have an update on the this story that you started off with that makes it even more suspicious but go ahead okay all right well let me let me uh just tell you guys what he was going to testify against federal agents arresting arrested a philadelphia police officer tuesday accusing him of conspiring with officers in baltimore to sell cocaine and heroin seized from that city's streets prosecutors say that eric troy snell 33 earned thousands of dollars serving as a conduit between corrupt members of the Baltimore Police Task Force who stole the drugs from his and his brother who sold them in Philadelphia. Investigators also have accused Snell of threatening the children of a Baltimore officer who pleaded guilty in the case. Man, they are threatening to kill your children, and they did kill one guy. His arrest is the latest in a widening police corruption scandal that has rocked Maryland's largest city, resulting in the arrest of eight members of an elite gun task force there who prosecutors have accused of robbing and extorting drug dealers for years. Not just recently, for years. A Philadelphia police spokesman said that Snell, a three-year veteran of the force, who had been assigned to the department's 35th district in northwest Philadelphia would be suspended for 30 days with intent to dismiss. Wow. Snell began his police career in Baltimore before arriving in Philadelphia in 2014. It was at the police academy in Maryland that he met Jamel Ryan, a fellow officer, and his primary contact with the Baltimore Gun Gun Trace Task Force. The squad had been deployed to crack down on proliferation of illegal guns in that city. But prosecutors now say that Ram and several cohorts, including two commanding sergeants, used their position to rob drug dealers and pocket hundreds of thousands of dollars uncovered while searching homes and cars of suspected criminals. 
Now, I'm not going to read the rest of that story. You get the idea of what's going on, but I do want to point out something here that they said suspected criminals. That's, that's all they got to say. You don't have to be a criminal. They could just run up in your house, take everything you own, and say you're a suspected criminal. That's how our Fourth Amendment rights are being violated with the asset seizure laws that are in place today. Scotty, you said you want to add to that? Yes, the Baltimore police are refusing to let the FBI join the investigation of this murdered uh, homicide detective. So, you know, if they was trying to dismiss any quote unquote conspiracy theories or dispel any kind of, of thoughts that, hey, they're trying to cover it up. Well, they just added more fuel to the fire by refusing to let the FBI uh, join the investigation and some other experts have weighed on in on this and they say that you know that that will be the most that will be the best scenario if you want transparency is to let the FBI as an outside agency um, lead the investigation I, uh, actually and, and not just be a part of it so that just came out yesterday that the Baltimore Police Department will not allow the FBI to join the investigation that points to uh, police chiefs for instance like the one who already said that there's no connection when the investigation hasn't even been done yet that points to corruption at the highest of levels and as Scotty, you mentioned earlier, these are very likely different cases, including the other case we saw in Baltimore where police were caught on their very own camera planting drugs on innocent people. Remember, that was just not too long ago, like last month or two months ago. Now, while so I think, okay. I'm sorry, while I was searching for um, that updated information I just gave you, I also found out. I came across a story that said those six cops who were charged by the FBI will not be charged with civil rights violations. So they'll just be um, um, facing criminal charges, I guess, for robbing the people as well as robbing the city because they was falsifying uh, overtime that they did not do. So, you know, that's stealing as well. Um, so, but the Justice Department, which is not surprising considering that the, the, uh, the um, what's his name, um, Jeff Sessions, uh, stated coming in the door that the FBI wasn't interested in policing the police and, and, and putting them under these uh, consent decree orders to address their civil rights abuses. So me hearing that those six cops again, who were robbing people on the street, also cheating the taxpayers out of uh, out of overtime that they did not work to find out that the Justice Department isn't interested in charging them with civil rights violations. This is uh, just crazy. Uh, anything you want to add to this later? I believe Baltimore has done something politically because this is widespread. It happens in every single state, especially in large cities. So the police have been stealing from drug dealers. They've been stealing from um, those lockup where they put the different evidence and different things in those rooms. They've been tampering with evidence. They've been planning evidence. And there are some um, precincts because they've been more politicized towards um, the black community that I strongly believe the FBI is looking at them. 
because this is something that we see all the time just in San Diego, and nobody can prove it. We all know it's happening. We know the cops that are doing it, and the cops know the cops that are doing it, and they don't care. So I know if it's happening here, it's happening everywhere. Nine out of ten people in the jail in uh, Baltimore are African Americans. Nine Mm -hmm. out of freaking ten. Black people make up the largest percentage of people in the jail. Despite making up only 64% of Baltimore's residents, they comprise 90% of the people held in the jail. Currently, there are 2,900 African-American men incarcerated in Baltimore's jail. It's one of the oldest jails in the country. You know, when we did the Ferguson is American series, we did them on states. I only did one city. And that was Baltimore because Baltimore was so damn corrupt. Somebody had to put it in writing and show exactly how corrupt they are. I mean, where they're talking about spending money like $280 million just on jails. So we have to start thinking when we see these corruption cases come forth and, you know, an entire city's police department is corrupt or at least a large enough portion of it that it allows these types of things to happen then we have to start looking for people who need their freedom, who deserve their freedom, who have been railroaded or framed or however they got them into these jails and prisons or, in some cases, into cemeteries. If you want to know about how bad Baltimore is, I just published Baltimore is Ferguson on New Abolitionist Radio on our Facebook page. Feel free to go and peruse through it and look you will be shocked. Well, looks like we're up on our first break. Uh, we're going to take a few messages and we'll be right back after this. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. Podcast and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. You're here, I'm here with uh, Scotty Reed and Leila Aziz, and we're, as usual, talking about modern day slavery and human trafficking. Right now, our focus was just on Baltimore, Maryland, and the corruption that is unfolding within that city itself and just how bad it is in the police department and I was uh, mentioning how it really should be an automatic thing when police are found to be corrupt or indicted or charged with racketeering or anything like that that their entire history needs to be uh, inspected and checked out to find out how many people have suffered at their hands how many innocent people are incarcerated or even dead All right, well, unless you guys want to ask or say anything about the Baltimore case, I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit about uh, Libya as well. You know, I've been putting in our weekly uh, planning thing now for the past five or six weeks, and we never really got a chance to speak about it on New Abolitionist Radio. But since you just finished talking about it on the radio, Scotty, uh, would you like to share uh, maybe what happened on the program? Yes. And what you know what's going on? Yes, um, a lot of 
outrage people were expressing, but also frustrations and trying to come up with some solutions. But I had I had to break it to them. The only solution is a military solution. Now, are there things that we can do? As I was expressing frustration last night at at you know not being a young man in, anymore, not being a billionaire where I could, um, you know, form my own private security army or, or whatever and go over there myself. And so since I'm not in that position, the only power that I have is uh, the pen or the keyboard and my voice and, and using the telephone. And so, you know, some of the things, um, one of the things I heard, though, uh, from a young lady, but it wasn't appropriate for me to address it at that time. It was, you know, uh, uh, other panel members and I was running out of time, but it just disheartened me to hear her say that we got slavery going on in Asia. We got it going on in, in Africa and other parts of the world. And slavery's just mental here in the United States. So new abolitionists know that's incorrect, but I, I did not, you know, want to pick that point. Uh, with her, um, I'll definitely make a point to get back with that person uh, through the host who invited me to tell them to tune in to New Abolitionist Radio and see if we can change her mind on whether she thinks slavery is just mental here in the United States. So um, one of the things that has frustrated me, Max, is, you know, this is something I've been covering since day one, since before the illegal overthrow of the, of the most prosperous and generous nation in Africa being Libya that I was telling people that Barack Obama, Susan Rice and Hillary Clinton is lying to you. Uh, Gaddafi's telling this wrote a letter to President Obama calling him his African son and what have telling him, look, we ain't just killing people. And, and what had happened was, was a fake Arab Spring. Because if you remember during that time in 2011, the Arab Spring kicked off in, in Egypt. No, I think it kicked off in Tunisia first. Then it hit Egypt. Now, the United States and Western powers were deep into trying to overthrow uh, the government of Syria through these proxies of theirs, calling them Syrian rebels. Some of them are straight up terrorists. ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and we know the CIA's long history to that. So under the cover of the of the Arab Spring, the CIA and the U.S. State Department, including the ambassador who got killed in Benghazi, were supporting those elements, those terrorist elements to overthrow Libya. So the, why did the U.S. want to do that? Well, Two reasons. The U.S. wanted to do it because the Congress was not able to pass a bill to arm these terrorists, you know, with U.S. arms. So they found, hey, Libya's not that far away. Gaddafi got a bunch of rifles and bullets and ammunition and all that good stuff. We could just get those and transfer them to those terrorists in, in Syria. So also, the U.S. had the same interest as France did, which was expressed in Hillary Clinton's emails between her and Sidney Blumenthal, a criminal. And in those emails um, of Hillary Clinton's, also with the French, the former French president, was that Gaddafi, they were worried about Gaddafi about to launch this African currency for the African Union backed by gold. 
Now, for those in the United States that know a little something about the 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 federal those Federal Reserve notes that we call dead presidents or or U.S. dollars, they're also known as petrodollars, ceased to be backed by gold back in the 1930s, I believe, or, or a little earlier than that. And that that the only thing that gives the U.S. dollar is value is these nations trading oil and buying the oil with U.S. dollars. That's the only thing that gives U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve notes, which aren't issued by the U.S. government, but uh, the private corporation known as the Federal Reserve. And, and if Gaddafi was to do that immediately, that will have a serious impact on the U.S. petrodollar as well as the euro. Because ain't none of these countries, you know, those two countries or those two entities are, are they're just issuing monopoly money. It's not backed by any kind of precious metals or anything. And that would immediately have put Africa on top of the world. It would have made Africa, the African Union, a uh, uh, economic global power that they just couldn't deal with. So this was an uh, intervention to to hold to keep up this um, this uh, world you know financial uh, situation or system that's controlled by European countries. And so I mean, soon as it started happening, pictures started surfacing of African people in cages being terrorized by Arab men. Um, their nationalities, I don't know. I don't know if they were all Libyans. I, I just simply can't tell you that. But those images and those videos were coming out pretty early, and I was helping others to circulate those videos. I just came across an old interview I did with T. West of Afro Synergy um, about that situation. And so that slave trade that's going on in Libya did not just start this year. It's been going on since those uh, people took over the country that has taken it over. And it's a very uh, unstable country as you have about three different factions who are fighting each other. So that's what's going on in Libya. Now, the only solution, again, that I see that these people really desperately need that, that will provide them with what they need is a military intervention. And I know people express doubts, and I have my reservations as well, but I don't see no other way. But U.S. boots need to be put on the ground. Like Colin Powell said you about Iraq, if you break it, you own it. And the U.S. broke Libya along with France and these other countries. And Donald Trump on Thanksgiving wanted to say to the troops that y'all fight for good, which is a bald-faced lie. But if they want to do some good, if he want to make that little statement, have some little truth to it, then they need to go into Libya, uh, which has been described as basically a terrorist training ground right now. But I'm most concerned with what's happening to the African people, and they need liberation. And a shout-out to the brothers and sisters in France who have been surrounding the Libyan embassy in France and preventing them from going back and forth. And the same thing needs to happen here or any in any country where we have abolitionists, okay? Because I want to expand abolitionism to mean, you know, not just illegal slavery, but slavery, period, in all its forms like the UN Declaration of Human Rights talks about. And so we should be surrounding these embassies, 
Hey, they shouldn't be able to do any business on the phone because we clogging up the phone lines. You can just Google the Libyan Embassy, Washington, D.C. telephone number. I made a meme with the White House phone number as well as the Libyan Embassy phone number. And I've been calling and I've been tweeting at Donald Trump and trying to push his buttons and what have you. But, you know, that's in a nutshell is is what I shared with them is what I just shared with you all. Man, I don't, I don't even know what to say. Layla? I do see that supposedly the European Union and the African Union just released a statement that they're going in there with military might. And um, to my issue was, why did the African Union march on Libya, who has not had a president? How many years? Two years? Because of the murder. Um, yes. And what they've done. I also read something earlier today about Obama saying in 2016 Libya was the worst thing he ever did. One of his worst mistakes. I'm not sure if that's um, what what he actually said, Sister Layla. And I've been trying to point out to people who's been trying to be an apologist for him. He's apologizing for the aftermath. He's not apologizing for the illegal overthrow. He's apologizing for the aftermath and and not having boots on the ground to control the situation. But I'm I what I say to that, Sister Layla, is. Look, everybody criticized George Bush for going in, invading Iraq, and then not leaving a substantial force there to to mitigate any kind of factional uh, violence. And so it's not like this was not foreseen. Some of the generals told this man this. And so I, I just am not accepting any excuses or any apologies from Barack Obama because, like you said, that interview was in 2016. What he's what he say about it in 2017? Is he saying anything? Is he using his his voice, the power of Twitter? I think he got millions of Twitter followers. Is he is when he go to give four hundred thousand dollar speeches to these powerful Europeans and, and Euro Americans? Is, is he saying you know that's a humanitarian crisis over there and 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 Donald Trump needs to go clean up my mess? So uh, I, I'm sorry, sis, but I'm <laughs> not right. I'm not accepting any kind of apologies from uh, uh, Mr. Obama. Oh, I totally agree. I don't think we should have gone into Libya in the first place, but we're, we're, that ship has already, ship has already sailed. Yep. And at this point, I'm, uh, most of my, and I'm going to just say it, depression is, why in the world are these African leaders allowing this? March on Libya. Am I wrong? You're former military, Scotty. I'm like Nigeria. I don't care if these people are fleeing your country. March on Libya. They need to know, you touch an African, this is what happens. Well, Sister Layla, Unfortunately, the African Union, I shouldn't say the entire African Union, because remember, like you mentioned, Gaddafi was the president at one time. They have a rotating chair chairperson and he, he was that. But the African Union, when the reason that you have these sort of um, uh, international or national pacts with other nations is like NATO. If you attack one of us, you attacking all of us. So African Union could have prevented that happening in Libya by saying, no, we're not going to allow this. We'll handle it ourselves. This is one of our member countries. We'll go in there and do the investigation. But based off of what happened in Zimbabwe, um, I came across some information uh, in The Hill, which is the, I think the, they call it, you know, one of the oldest papers in Washington, D.C. But you had a, a, a woman who is a business consultant, write an op-ed piece in the Hill 
telling Donald Trump, advising Donald Trump to use the situation to further U.S. interests by giving, offering them money and things of that nature. And, and saying, and she also said, and use our partners in the African Union. That said a lot to me, and that also will could explain why Afri- the African Union stood down while one of their member countries were attacked because they're proxies of the West too. I agree. Sad situation. I saw the photos and the videos, which you can find on New Abolitionist Radio on our Facebook page, as well as our Black Talk Radio Network community page where you can see the horrors of modern-day slavery and human trafficking right there. It's just, you think you're looking at something from 1650 or 1700, and no, it's 2017 right now in, the, in this world today happening right in front of our faces, and we are dragging our feet about doing something. Well, let's take it back more uh, close to the home, and if we can... The next story that I want to get on to squeeze in tonight before we get in our final segments is a little bit about what's happening in Ohio and how Ohio is pretending not to know what the hell is going on with their state when it comes to mass incarceration. Um, it, it really, you know, we, as I said before, we've done the America is Ferguson series where we examine every state in this union for 50 weeks straight here on New Abolitionist Radio and broke down the stats on their incarceration, how much money they were making, their involvement with the jails and prisons, the uh, human rights atrocities and constitutional violations that were going on state by state. So we were already aware of what was happening in Ohio. And I guess now Ohioans or allegedly politicians in Ohio want to know what's going on in their state as if they don't. So the first article, I linked it in our chat room there. Uh, Layla, if you want to do us the honor and read it from the Dayton. Oh, do not click on that link in the chat room without first pushing the control key because it will knock you off the board totally. It'll even disconnect your Uh call. So you want to hit the control key first, then click the link. And I just opened it up. So, yeah, that's the procedure. Okay, I'm glad for the, the, the heads up on that. But yeah, if you can get to that, Layla, and, and read that for us, it's uh, from the Daily News, uh, and it says, why are so many Ohioans in prison? The state is trying to find out. And this was from November 22nd, 2017. So this is just like a week ago that they're starting to ask these questions. I, I'll go and, ahead and uh, take it, Max. I don't, I don't think that Layla's uh, logged in to the chat so I'll go ahead and take oh, it okay. since I already got it up All right, you guys tell me how to log in thank you Scotty <laughs> you're, you're welcome alright so why are so many Ohioans in prison the state is trying to find out this was an article that was published in the Dayton Daily News Laura A. Bischoff of the Columbus Bureau and she published this uh, November the 22nd, so last week. Ohio is planning a deep dive into crime data, arrests, convictions, sentencing, probation, incarceration, behavioral health, and more. To help answer some vexing questions such as why the state has such a high prison population and why so many people here are on probation, the answers and what is done about it could have a profound influence on the public which spends millions of dollars every year 
on the state's criminal justice system. Number crunchers and policy wonks will spend nearly a year examining why Ohio struggles with high prison populations increasing, opioid overdose deaths, and one of the highest rates of adults on probation in the country. Data is collected locally by scores of agencies, departments, courts, and more. Sorely lacking is the ability to comprehensively look at the information, says Sarah Andrews, director of the Ohio Criminal Sentencing Commission. It is disparate. It is not standardized. Everyone keeps data, but there is no way to effectively bring it all together and talk about it, she said. Even a simple question, how much does Ohio spend on criminal justice each year, can't be easily answered, she said. I mean, with all that money y'all making, um, you know, millions of dollars, why you ain't spending it on um, you know, uh, IT data systems and stuff so that you can do this stuff. Uh, that tells you where their priorities are. The effort has the backing of all three branches of state government, uh, Governor John Kasich, Attorney General Mike DeWine, Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor, House Speaker Cliff Rosenberger, and Ohio Senate President uh, Larry Obhorf jointly requested support from the U.S. Department of Justice and the Pew Charitable Trust to address criminal justice system challenges. The Council of State Governments will help Ohio collect data to analyze statewide criminal justice trends, including a drop in violent crime. Where have we heard that before? But an increase in murders and assaults, a decline in arrests for murder and assaults, an increase in opioid overdose deaths. Um, Let me see if there's anything else. Uh, Meanwhile, Ohio's prison population remains stubbornly high, even though the number of people sent to prison has declined. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense there. How does it remain high, but the number of people sent to prison is declining? Um, I guess it's remaining high because of long prison sentences, I guess. I don't know. Um, Your BS meter is going off there, Scott. Yeah, so... Listen, I got. I, if they want to donate a million dollars to Black Talk Media Project, I can answer the question for them right now. Slavery. That's why so many Ohioans are in, are in prison. Take a look at your state constitution, which is modeled after the Thirteenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. That's a very simple question. That's why you're making profit. Off of bodies. You commodify bodies. You're providing jobs that way. I know them, oh, them overseers and slave catchers are getting in there over time. And, and so that's the reason. It's a very simple question to answer. Max, Layla. Go ahead, Layla, because I have some data that I'm going to share about this afterwards. You want to add anything? You guys, we, we, we continuously demonstrate where the dollars are going and what this is all about, right? Yes. At what point do people understand that we are still in the modern post-slave or modern slave society? At what point do we do this? From Ohio to California to, and the list goes on to all 50 states. Is there a good state, you guys? No. 
there is no state in the union where racism is not practiced uh, excessively to the point where per 100,000, it is just this incredible vast difference between whites and blacks. In terms of the 13th Amendment and state constitutions modeling the the Constitution, I think there's only two states. Now, North Carolina outright abolished slavery, but they got their exception clause in there, too. And that exception is involuntary servitude. And I'm like, what's the damn difference? Exactly. It's a play on words. That's all that's it California is. California, too, though. Yeah, that's California, too. We have slavery abolished with involuntary servitude. Then we have a proposition in the 90s, I want to say it's 94, that basically says we're going to force everyone to work so they can pay all this money. <laughs> But I'm going to call BS on Sarah Andrews, the director of the Ohio Criminal Sentencing Commission, who claims that they can't figure out where all this money is going, because in 2016, Max Parthas did the research to help figure out where all that money was going. You were in 2014, the state of Ohio was spending as much as $1.5 billion per year on their Department of Corrections. I'm just going to read a couple of things from the Ohio is Ferguson report and a a couple of the articles I'll point out that backs up everything I'm saying. Uh, One big problem is in 2013, Ohio had a rate 89% higher than the national average number of probationers per 100,000 people. And we know that probation is one of the quickest ways that people end up inside prisons violation of probation. I would suggest that Ohio look into the private, for-profit probation companies that very likely exist right there in Ohio. So that's the first thing. Uh, Here are, at at this point right now, Ohio's prisons are at 132% capacity. Uh, The rate of incarceration for whites is 344 per 100,000. Blacks, 2,196 per 100,000 and Hispanic 613 per 100,000. And blacks only make up 12.6% of the population in Ohio. Now, here's some things of note about Ohio. 3% of a single Ohio County census block group comprises 20% of the state's population, prison population. So 3% of one little block is comprising 20% of your total state prison population. And let's not forget the Department of Justice's investigations into the two cities of Cleveland and Cincinnati, finding that they were indeed practicing prison for profit uh, and exploiting and extortion. Here's another thing. It's a dubious distinction at best. Ohio became the first and only state to sell a prison to a private company. The short documentary Prisons for Profit, produced by the ACLU of Ohio, examines the first 18 months after Corrections Corporation of America, now known as Core Civic, purchased the Lake Erie Correctional Institution, LAECI, in 2011 from the state of Ohio. The film chronicles the disturbing and oftentimes dangerous sets of events that unfolded in the aftermath of that sale. And then finally, A recent Google search data study revealed that Ohio is among the most racist states in America. The inmate population in Ohio's already crowded prison system is projected to reach a record 52,000 
by June 30th, more than 4,100 higher than what state officials predicted the year before. Ohio is Ferguson. That's what's going on. So you're pretending like you don't know you're spending $1.5 billion a year on your Department of Corrections. You're pretending like you don't know that it's one of the most racist states in America. You're pretending you didn't have a Department of uh, Justice investigate two of your cities, and you're pretending you don't know 20% of your prison population comes from just one small community that you keep arresting over and over and over again. Yeah, it's, pre- it's pretty absurd. Um, I tell you, man, we dealing. It's it's just hard when you're dealing with people who are not coming from an honest place because you can't have an honest conversation with people like that, man. Now I'm sure that Ohio, um, the legislature, come up with a budget every year, right? And they allocate where the money's going. So I'm not buying this. They don't know where the money's going. They know exactly where it's going. Here in South Carolina, where I'm at, at presently, their Department of Justice of Corrections uh, budget is three quarters of a billion dollars. Ohio ain't no bigger than South Carolina, but they got double the budget. Now, why is that? And, you know, the ACLU just sued them in court for debtors' prisons. And that Miss Sarah is acting like she don't know about that. You know, and it, 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 it was so effective that the state Supreme Court had to strike down debtors' prisons. Now, strike down debtors' prisons sounds wonderful when you hear it like that, but really all they did was issue out these alternatives to judges to use in cases of bail. They found that they were using the bail system to generate revenue for the state of Ohio. Again, uh, again Max. Is, uh, Look, if they want to hire us we can come in and tell them. I just did a good, quick Google search because we know Alec is responsible for many other state bills that that incarcerate or lead to, you know, uh, more people being enslaved. So I just did this quick search and I found a page, sourcewatch.org, Ohio Alec politicians. Uh, for a list of politics, let me, this is a partial list of Ohio politicians that are known to be involved in or previously involved in the American Legislative Exchange Council. Um, and it, it lists, let me see, look like all Republicans. Yeah, it's all Republicans. I, I'm I'm like, wow, man. Um, it's got a pretty long list, man. So, you know, Alec. You know, Alec was brought up in uh, Ava DuVernay's film, The 13th, and they do play a role in it. And we've covered them, you know, for years in trying to inform people how these legislatures are given basically a paid vacation to go out to Arizona or wherever Alec has his, his conference and, and all expenses paid and then they bring them in and they show them the legislation that they have written up and then get them classes on how to sell it when they go back to their respective states damn Layla I can see how that works what's really troubling is um, Ohio was supposed to be freedom right I know when you look at the southern states where these former um Slaves from the 1800s walked Ohio with Georgia, and to see I lived in Cleveland for a while, and their um, very crooked system, very unfair system, and also a system that's geared, like you demonstrated, to make money for the state. Slavery. 
Yes, ma'am. Well, that's where your you, you, your man uh, Max Parthas will be heading to build our homestead out there and start an abolitionist compact because uh, we're needed out there in Ohio. Yes, we are. Well, we're coming up on our last break for the evening, I, I guess, Scotty. And uh, when we come back, we'll get into our regular segments, our abolitionist in profile, our writer of the 21st century Underground Railroad, and we will remember a rebellion. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back after these messages. Black Talk Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. We are going to get into our final segments of the evening, uh, regular segments that we do every week, uh, starting with our rider of the Underground Railroad, 21st Century Underground Railroad. I'll do that one after I'm done with that one. Uh, Layla, if you could do the uh, Abolitionist in Profile, which is at the top of the New Abolitionist page on Facebook. And Scotty, if you can do our Rebellion, which is also there right at the top. I just put them up there for both of you guys. Uh, <clears throat> if you want to pull it up and get it ready, I'll start with our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. And this is kind of a success story, and I'll add some more after I read it. This comes from TheRoot.com. Jury awards man $15 million for spending 20 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. A federal jury awarded a Baltimore man $15 million after he spent more than two decades wrongly incarcerated for murder. Sabian Burgess sued the Baltimore Police Department and two detectives for his wrongful conviction for the 1994 murder of his then-girlfriend, Michelle Dyson, according to the Baltimore Sun. Man, I hate these... Uh, <laughs> these uh, pop-ups that jump up in front of your face in the middle of reading here on these articles. But any case, any case, according to the Baltimore Sun, Burgess was released from prison in 2015 when the state conceded that he did not commit the crime. In October 1994, police responded to an emergency call and found Burgess cradling his girlfriend's body after she had been shot and immediately took Burgess into custody. Wow, that must have been horrible for Brother Stan just holding your dead girlfriend, bleeding out, and they arrest you for killing her when you did. Anyway, he was interrogated for hours, did not confess, and was eventually released. But detectives charged him with the murder after gunshot residue was found on his hands. Burgess's lawyer explained that scientific tests showed that gunpowder residue could linger in the air or be transferred through touching, but the investigators wouldn't listen. In his lawsuit, Burgess said that two Baltimore policemen, Gerald Goldstein and Stephen Lehman, pinned the murder on him even though they had credible evidence that someone else committed the crime. It turns out that the FBI had contacted the detectives and told them that they were investigating a hitman named Howard Rice. The killer told the agents that Dyson was killed over a botched drug deal and that he knew who killed her. 
but the detectives never looked into it. Then Burgess's mother received a letter from someone who confessed that he, along with the same hitman, Howard Rice, had killed Dyson, but the detectives didn't bother to investigate it. The detectives also received a call from Dyson's father, who said that Dyson had been nervous in the days before the shooting because someone named Little Man was trying to kill her, but you know, Little Man is the street name for Howard Rice. Rice died in 1999 and is suspected of as many as seven murders. Despite the fact that multiple people had informed the two now-retired detectives that Rice killed Dyson, he was never investigated by the Baltimore Police Department. Burgess did not seek a specific amount of money in his lawsuit. After he was awarded $15 million, he said, Finally, justice has been served. Burgess added, It wasn't about the money. It was about wanting the truth to come out. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Brother Burgess. Salute. Welcome to freedom. Welcome to freedom, man. You've been out a couple years, but now you got 15 million. You should consider donating some of that to the New Abolitionist Movement. Now, you wanted me to cover Gabriel's conspiracy. Yes, sir. Okay. Wow. And I, I just briefly went over this, but... I'm just going to tell y'all right off the bat, by the time I get through reading this, you will find out where the system, how, how racism and white supremacy came to be a legal practice here in the United States. This is the birth of white supremacy. Again, as I've told people, slavery was first. White supremacy was enacted in order to maintain slavery. And so we should be cognizant of that. Why? Because it's the truth and it's documented. So let me read Gabriel's conspiracy for you all. Death or Liberty. On August the 30th, 1800, a tremendous storm dropped heavy rain on central Virginia, swelling creeks and turning Richmond's dirt streets into quagmires. The storm aborted one of the most extensive, um, man, one of the extensive plots in American history of, of, of victims of slavery to free themselves. A conspiracy known to hundreds of the victims of slavery throughout central Virginia. A, cas- a car- excuse me, charismatic blacksmith named Gabriel who was owned by Thomas Prosser of Henry Cole Plan to enter Richmond with force, capture the Capitol and the Virginia State Armory and hold Governor James Monroe hostage to bargain for freedom for Virginia's victims of slavery. The intensity of the storm delayed the conspirators' planned gathering and a few nervous victims of slavery told their um, enslavers of the plot. The arrest of the conspirators, including Gabriel, led to trials in Richmond, Petersburg, Norfolk, and several surrounding counties. The conspirators were tried in courts of Oyer and Terminer, established under, this is it right here, a 1692 statute in which testimony was heard by five justices, not a jury, with appeal only to the governor. 26 victims of slavery were hanged and another apparent apparently committed suicide in his cell. Several who were convicted were sold and transported out of Virginia. Two of the victims who had informed their enslavers about the intended rebellion received their freedom. Man, disgusting. 
Uh, historian Douglas R. Egerton definitively places the insurrection within the context of post-revolutionary Virginia when Democratic, Republicans, and Federalists argued about the proper extent of liberty and debated the legacies of the French American and even the Haitian revolutions. Learning from these debates, Gabriel based his actions on con- on conceptions of freedom and liberty that flowed from the revolutionary movements. At Gabriel's trial, Ben Woolfolk, who had been recruited by Gabriel, testified that Gabriel intended to purchase a piece of silk for a flag on which he would have written death or liberty, a clear reference to Patrick Henry's fiery speech of 1775. If white Richmond, Richmond, Richmonders agreed to free the victims of slavery. According to one conspirator, Gabriel would dine and drink with merchants of the city. One insurgent reputedly stated that I have nothing more to offer than what General Washington will have had to offer had he been taken by the British and put to trial. Gabriel's conspiracy had an immediate impact on American politics and Virginia law and society. The planned rebellion was widely reported in American newspapers and during the 1800 presidential campaign. The Federalists cited the event as a consequence of the Democratic-Republican support of the French Revolution and ultra-democratic ideals. The intense scrutiny made some of Virginia leaders uncomfortable with the execution of the revolutionaries. Monroe, a participant himself in a war for liberty, expressed concern about the number of executions. Thomas Jefferson agreed that there is a strong sentiment that that has been hanging enough. The other states and the world at large will forever condemn us if we indulge in a principle of revenge. In the wake of the affair, however, Virginia lawmakers imposed new restrictions on slaves and free blacks and whites would never again be complacent about the possibility of slave uprisings. And, and New Abolitionist Radio salutes the participants in Gabriel's conspiracy death or liberty now what I wanted to say about this is that it was earlier in the 1600s this it traces back to Virginia colonial law that laws were passed that would restrict that would put restrictions on free blacks what were some of those restrictions they could not own firearms. That Second Amendment, you no, know, they didn't want black people to have no firearms. It also said that they didn't have a right to self-defense. I'm talking about free black people now. I'm not talking about uh, victims of, uh, of slavery. I'm talking about free black people. A lot of us, we don't want to acknowledge that we had free black people back then, but who do you think was the primary conductors of the Underground Railroad, if not the black church and, and others? And, and but... It was in Virginia colonial law uh, that put those restrictions on free black people and further restricted the movement of the victims of slavery, which gave birth to white supremacy. All right. So um, and and Bacon's rebellion also kind of plays into it. But I don't want to confuse the two conspiracies, the uh, two revolts. Max, Layla. Uh, Lele, if you uh, would do this, the honors of our abolitionists in profile, and it's not necessary for you to do the poem. Uh, I just added it there uh, for people to be able to read one of our poems. I really liked it too. So, oh, if you want to do it, you, you can do it. We got time, sure. 
let's see if I can go through um, her story to um, spend more time on the, the poem. But her name is Frances E.W. Harper. She's an abolitionist, a poet, and an activist. She lived from 1825 until 1911. Born in Baltimore, poet, fiction writer, journalist, and activist, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper was the only child of free African-American parents. She was raised by her aunt and uncle after her mother died when Frances was three years old. She attended the Academy for Negro Youth, a school run by her uncle, until the age of 13, and then found domestic work in a Quaker household, where she had access to a wide range of literature. After teaching for two years in Ohio and Pennsylvania, she embarked on a career as a traveling speaker on the abolitionist circuit. She helped slaves escape through the Underground Railroad and wrote frequently for anti-slavery newspapers, earning her a reputation as the mother of African-American journalism. She was a prolific writer, and she published many collections of poetry. She married Fenton Harper in 1860. He brought to the marriage three children of his own, and together they had a daughter. When her husband died in 1864, Harper continued to support her family through speaking engagements. During Reconstruction, she was an activist for civil rights, women's rights, and educational opportunities for all. She was superintendent of the colored section of the Philadelphia and Pennsylvania Women's Christian Temperance Union, co-founder and vice president of the National Association of Colored Women, and a member of the American Women's Suffrage Association. Harper was also the director of American Association of Colored Youth. This is one of her poems. I'm going to read a few lines. It's called The Slave Auction. The sale began. Young girls were there, defenseless in their wretchedness, who stifled sobs of deep despair, revealed their anguish and distress. And mothers stood with streaming eyes and saw their dearest child children sold, unheeded rose their bitter cries, while tyrants bartered them for gold. And women with her love and truth, for these insatiable forms may dwell, gazed on the husband of her youth, with anguish none may paint or tell. And men whose sole crime was their hue, the impress of their maker's hand, and frail and shrinking children's too, we gathered in that mournful band. Ye who have laid your love to rest and wept above their lifeless clay, know not the anguish of that breast whose loved are rudely torn away. Ye may not know how desolate our bosoms rudely forced apart and how a dull and heavy weight will press the life drops from the heart. And that was our featured abolitionist on the new abolitionist radio show, Francis E.W. Harper. Salute Sister Harper, the mother of African-American journalism and a poet on the abolitionist speaking circuit. <laughs> Man, we are just following in their footsteps and hoping we can be half as good as they were. Even a tenth as good. Oof. Well, that's uh, that's the end of our regular segments there, and uh, thank you for sharing that poem with us. I'm glad you squeezed the time in there for it. Well done. Uh, I think now we'll come to the point where 
we just give a few closing statements, uh, something you might want people to remember or something coming up that you want to remind them of. And uh, be sure to tune in next week, too, on New Abolitionist Radio right here on the blacktalkradionetwork.com. And uh, don't be shy. Call in if you got a question, because I know with this information will uh, inspire people to ask questions, because you've been lied to for a very long time. So who wants to start out with our final statements for the evening? Scotty, Layla, either of you? I'll let Scotty, you want to go or you want me to go? You can go, Layla. Well, today was a very informative show, and it demonstrated that um, slavery is still alive, well, and kicking, um, not only in the United States, but in Northern Africa and other places. Um, I thank you both for a lot of the information that was shared from the prison industrial slave complex um, to our, um, what I want to slave rebellions, um, Gabriel's rebellion. And I just want, if I can say anything, and... Um, and I'm going to mirror what you guys say all the time, always look for the connections. There is no crime that can have, that has been done. There is no um, skin hue that a person has been born with. There is no religion that a person has embraced that can ever make a person feel as though slavery should exist, period. And that's what we're fighting as abolitionists. We do not believe slavery has a place in modern society. And for once, we want it to rest from the prison industrial slave complex to the buying and selling of people in Libya. Libya. So thank you, Scotty and Max. Thank you, Layla. Um, I, I, for my final comments, I want to take it back to the program that I was on called Revive which is on the time for an awakening.com radio network. And, you know, um, very passionate young people. The show is, is geared towards millennials. And so it was my pleasure to be able to speak to some of those millennials. But what, what really stood out to me besides the issue we were on there talking about, which was the slave trade in Libya right now. But when the young lady um, express that we only have mental slavery here in the United States just tells me that we got a lot of work to do uh, in informing our young people and I'm not even going to put an age on it but just informing people period um, like I told one of our guests one time Angela Chan who was a guest on Black Talk Radio News when she published a piece in the Huffington Post and she's an attorney out of, I think she's out of California too, in the San Francisco area. She works mainly with, with the immigration issues, but she's an Asian woman. And like I told her, I asked her when she pointed out that slavery was being practiced via the 13th Amendment and that even the, the uh, immigration um, slavery um, was in violation of the 13th Amendment. So she made a distinction between the legal slavery and the illegal slavery that, that detained immigrants go through, which isn't authorized by the 13th Amendment. But I asked her, I said, so do you consider yourself an abolitionist? And she was like, well, I don't know. Um, you know, what does it take to be an abolitionist? I said, do you believe that slavery still exists legally here in the United States? She said, yes. I said, will you take it upon yourself to tell somebody else about it and to tell, you know, as many people as possible that slavery was never abolished? She said, yes. 
I said, well, you're an abolitionist. That's what we have to do, people. Let's not assume that everyone has access to the same information that we have access through through the social uh, circles that we have established and that, you know, we should make it a point to bring that up, you know, with people whenever possible. So I just want to say, you know, abolition today, abolition yesterday, abolition for the fu- to the future until slavery has been abolished once and for all. Amen. Well, amen. Right? Exactly. Amen. Until it's done. Until it's done. I'm going to keep mine real simple and I'm going to read something that Scotty Reed shared. A black woman who brings a child every two years is more profitable than the best man on any farm, Thomas Jefferson. Your heroes are an abolitionist monsters. And that's why we know that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the seas spill over And the mountains shake, break, and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the sky